This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, coming up, the Wharton School will be hosting the Wharton Global Forum in Amsterdam. The conference will be looking at ways for sustainable economic development, but also how the right conditions for that development may occur as well. And it comes at a very interesting time for Europe. Of course, you have concerns over the Eurozone and as well possible Brexit. Joining us in the studio, Wharton's Mauro Guillen. He'll be among several distinguished faculty speaking at the conference. Mauro, director of the Lauder Institute, as well as professor of international management here at the Wharton School. And also joining us in the studio, Steve Sharetta from Knowledge at Wharton. Great to have you all here today. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Mauro, great to have you back. Uh, and uh, I was thinking that this time last year was a really heady time for Europe. At the end of June, uh, you'll recall 2015, Greek banks had closed. The ECB began to freeze lending to the banks. Uh, at the same time, people were talking about uh, this was the beginning of the end for the Eurozone, and things looked very bleak. Uh, they did manage to kick the can down the road again. Uh, so what ha- just could you give us a recap of what's been happening in Europe over the last year and also in Greece? Well, what has been going on in Europe, essentially, is that uh, in continental Europe, that is, excluding the UK, is that the uh, the economies uh, in the south uh, and in the east uh, have been going through more problems uh, with um, economic growth, uh, you know, not really big enough or fast enough to reduce unemployment, uh, except for uh, in Ireland and uh, in Spain, pretty much. And even in those two countries, especially in Spain, it's not clear that that growth is sustainable. At the same time, uh, what we have uh, seen is uh, far more assertiveness on the part of the European Central Bank, led by Mario Draghi, in terms of engaging in quantitative easing, that is to say, you know, purchases of uh, not only government bonds, but also corporate bonds, much to the dismay of the Central European and Northern European countries that are also part of the Eurozone. So, in other words, uh, the euro uh, you know, continues to be a viable currency as long as the European Central Bank is willing to do whatever it takes. And remember, those were Mario Draghi's words from about three years ago. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, the, uh, the gap between north and south, the gap between east and west, the unemployment, all of those things continue and uh, with no end in sight. So we shall see what the future brings. So on a macro level, you hear things like uh, growth in the, in the EU now in the first quarter was about a half a percent. So that's maybe 2% a year. Of course, it actually seems to have slowed down. But there, there was some reaction in the markets that, well, maybe Europe's finally getting liftoff. Maybe that this is, a, 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 you know, the economy is really starting to rev up a little bit. Uh, and then, of course, you get the first not-so-wonderful numbers for the next quarter and, and, and hopes get drained again. But all of those concerns about deflation and inability to grow, they're, they're still hanging around in the background. Of course, we'll get to, to Brexit in a little bit. That's obviously the elephant in the boat that, that we want to talk about. But just to talk about the, the continental Europe for now, as you say. Well, the markets, you know, uh, especially these days, are always looking for good excuses to, um, you know, to feel <laughs> optimistic about things. And, uh, you know, if you look hard enough, you can certainly find uh, some, some good signals. I would say that uh, by far the two most important uh, you know, positive developments of the last uh, year or year and a half have been, first, the one that I just mentioned, which is that the European Central Bank is now doing what the Federal Reserve U, uh, did uh, beginning in 2009 uh, and uh, 2010, right, which uh, is a little bit uh, too late now, but 
but uh, it's better than never. Uh, and then the other, I think, important development is that um, German workers, in particular German employees, uh, have more money in their pockets uh, because wages have been rising in Germany, especially over the last uh, three years. And that uh, this is good because Germany is the largest economy and, um, you know, more consumers there with money. Most of the time it means that they spend more money and uh, to the extent that they spend money, at least part of those purchases of goods and services, you know, uh, go to uh, the um, southern uh, periphery in the European Union. What hasn't happened yet, and I, you know, we were all hoping that this would uh, at some point happen, is that the German government itself would be a little bit less frugal and would engage in, you know, a little bit more spending. But as you know, they're very adamant in that they want to have a balanced budget, although they can borrow money at negative interest rates. <laughs> they're not willing to, uh, you know, to do anything. And, uh, uh, you know, so here we are with a, uh, this interconnected set of economies in which uh, we have essentially, you know, three groups, the East, the North and the South, and uh, each of them with very different conditions. Uh, but all of these 17 countries in the Eurozone, unfortunately, with the same monetary policy, with the same scheme in place, and it's very hard. It's very hard to uh, to get anything done in that uh, situation. It's interesting because you hear uh, Mario Draghi sort of pleading in his quiet diplomatic way for fiscal stimulus. And in some of the, the economies that are doing better, of course, you know he means Germany um, more than any other. And he's not getting the response, which leaves him with simply monetary policy, quantitative easing, as you're talking about, which has limits, right? It can, it can only go so far. So... Um, Given that, it's now we're heading into the possibility of the UK or England leaving the the zone, the eurozone. And um, I, I was I saw something today that said the impact of that could be as big. The OECD said the impact of that could be as big or bigger than a hard landing in China. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of surprised me it was that big of a deal. Well, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. And, and you made a distinction that may ultimately be an interesting one between the UK and England. Right. So uh, technically speaking, the, uh, the country, you know, the nation state that is a member of the European Union is the UK, the United Kingdom. Uh, but as we all know, uh, the public opinion is uh, bitterly divided there uh, between the, those who want to stay and those who don't. But if you go to uh, Scotland, uh, <laughs> you find that most of the population is actually in favor of staying. Uh, so one of the risks of um, Brexit is that um, Scotland might want to, you know, become independent because they really want to remain within the European mm -hmm. Union, mm -hmm. and uh, this would only fuel uh, more of that, uh, you know, independent pro-independence movement over there. Uh, so, but you know, uh, Europe is uh, the European Union with uh, 28 members is uh, the largest economy in the world, right? It's bigger than the U.S. It's not as rich, but it is bigger in terms of just uh, GDP, right? If you combine mm -hmm. those 28 countries. And uh, essentially, you know, if uh, there is a crisis of confidence that undermines, you know, consumer spending, that undermines um, business confidence, then essentially uh, you're going to get into, you know, maybe even a third uh, recession, right? Because remember, Europe did go through a double dip, unlike uh, the U.S. We avoided a double mm -hmm. dip, right, a few years ago. Um, and that would be, I think, devastating for Europe itself, uh, but it would be really bad for everybody else in the world that has business with Europe, including the United States. So American exporters to Europe, American companies, and there's many of them who have in, which have investments in Europe. Mm -hmm. They make uh, stuff over there and then they sell it there. They're going to suffer. Some companies such as GE or GM uh, or Boeing, uh, you know, uh, 
20%, 30% of their business is in Europe, right? So, uh, so it, would, it could have a, 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 a large uh, impact. And then let me just bring up uh, another issue, which is that if there's a Brexit, the pound sterling would you know, lose value. Right, yep. The euro, I think, would also lose value because, again, there would be uh, such an erosion in confidence. And, you know, these days, although the dollar is intrinsically not that strong, it is perceived as being the only safe haven. Mm -hmm. And so what uh, we would uh, be witnessing then is a, is a strengthening of the dollar. And that would uh, also, you know, like uh, make it harder for American companies that export to, uh, to do so. And that's going to have a negative impact on the United States. So on and on and on and on, right? I mean, all of these, uh, you know, chains of events that I've uh, described, I think are quite likely hmm. if there is a Brexit, right? And if so, there is a Brexit, if, I mean, let's just, uh, big if. you know, em emphasize yeah. the if, yeah. So there, so in your mind that, and this has been brought up as well, is whether or not how much of this is, in some respects, a little bit of a negotiation ploy. Just you know to get to you know to, to well it's a risky uh, you know is. I would say Absolutely. I'd say yeah. uh, uh, I mean uh, I I don't want to doubt uh, you know David Cameron's uh, motives here as right. to why he's organizing this referendum I mean he does want to put this question to rest within his party now uh, as uh, other Europeans have already noted our European leaders you know he's playing with the future of Europe uh, for the sake of. Um, you know, settling a uh, a problem within his party, yeah, yeah. which is a uh, pretty risky way of doing it. Um, you know, the the UK has been in the European Union, um, you know, since 1973, right? It has always had doubts about it. If you remember, we went through several renegotiations of the relationship between the UK and the European Union, uh, especially under Margaret Thatcher, right, in the 80s and uh, early they never 90s. Did, they never did buy into the euro. Uh, and, uh, of course, they opted out of the euro, so mm -hmm. did the, uh, the Danes, right, so did mm -hmm. Denmark. Um, so, you know, um, from the point of view of the UK, if I were a voter over there, I would think, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm getting a few things that I really want, which is access to that big market. Um, I am also more influential as a country because I get to go to the meetings and I get to exercise not only a vote but also an opinion. And the UK, you know, is one of the three largest mm -hmm. economies in Europe, right? Yeah. So they have some some influence. You get to work in Europe. And uh, <laughs> well, that's the other issue that uh, you know there's. Um, uh, I think it's about three or three and a half million uh, UK citizens who live in other European countries. Well, if the UK were to leave, uh, you know, they would lose their you know, the right to be there. I mean, they would need to apply for uh, a work permit and so on and so forth. So that, that's another, you know, really important issue. And by the way, they might not be so they cannot vote. <laughs> yeah, the other problem is that right. they cannot vote. Mm -hmm. Only those who are uh, residing Living in the United in the States, in the yeah. UK, exactly, can vote, which is kind of interesting that the, uh, the government, uh, David Cameron, decided to do it this way because um, it would be, you know, if he's uh, sincerely in favor of, um, you know, remaining within the EU, he should yeah. have enabled uh people who are most likely going to vote uh, to remain, to, to, to be able to, to, to do so, right? And, uh, you know, most of those uh, three-plus million people would prefer to stay within the EUA, right? Those who, who uh, reside in other uh, European Union countries. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. In the studio with Steve Shred of the Knowledge at Wharton staff, along with uh, Wharton's Mauro Guillaume, we're talking about the European economy, uh, the strengths, maybe some of the weaknesses right now in, a, in, a, in advance of a potential uh, Brexit vote. Uh, it is interesting to see how this is all playing out and the time is coming down. As you mentioned, it is so divided right now in, in 
in the UK, in England right now, as to who wants to stay and who wants to go. It it it's there's no leaning right now whatsoever, one way or the other. And we're you know closing in on this vote coming up at the end of the month. Yeah, yeah. And the divisions run deep, but they're uh, somewhat predictable. That is to say. Greater London area, which is much more cosmopolitan, where there's more people who have uh, connections to the rest of Europe, the or even the rest of the Europe, yeah. the financial center, they're pretty much in favor. Uh, if you go to smaller, uh, you know, towns and so on and so forth throughout England, then you get more people opposed. Uh, but then, uh, you know, you uh, cross the border into Scotland or the boundary with Scotland, and uh, and then most people are, you know fiercely in favor of uh, staying within the European Union because they believe in, you know, European policy making, they believe in the welfare state, they believe in all of these things, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is the problem with Europe, that um, 10 years ago before the crisis, it may have been somewhat divided or there were differences of opinion mm -hmm. about this or that. The, the, the single most important effect of the crisis in Europe has been that whatever divisions existed uh, have become much, much, much bigger. Right. Uh, so these gaps that I was telling you about uh, in terms of the different perspectives that people have in different parts of Europe have become much, much wider. And, uh, you know, all of this uh, has been fueled by a number of issues, the sovereign debt crisis, the problems with the euro, and then more recently, of course, the um, migration crisis. Tell me if this how big of a deal this is. So within the last week, four top European leaders, Merkel from Germany, leader of Netherlands, leader for Spain, and the leader for Ireland all came out pretty strongly against Brexit, saying it's a bad idea. Uh, is, is that predictable or is that a strong well, statement? You know, I don't think that there's any, you know, political leader in, in continental Europe right now, right, or Ireland. Right who would be um, in favor of a Brexit, right? right. I mean, it's just uh, um, the logic of, uh, you know... But they're the, stepping into a local political issue in a way. Well, Obviously, yes and no, yeah. because again, this is the way in which uh, David Cameron framed it. And some people accuse him of actually, f you know, implicitly framing it as a problem within the Conservative Party, mm -hmm. which, as you know, is, is pretty strong in, in England, right? Uh, the Labour Party, as you know, is uh, is not doing well at the present time. Um, but whether you want it or not, it is a European level issue, absolutely. But of course, every country is sovereign, and they can, you know, uh, they can organize whatever referendums uh, they want to organize about any issue, including this one. But quite frankly, I mean, for a country that has done so much, right, in terms of contributing to European integration over the last uh, 40 plus years, because that's the amount of time that the UK has been a member, to now, you know, decide, well, been there, done that, onto something else. It's kind of strange. Uh, there is an English channel uh, that separates uh, the UK from the rest of continental Europe. But, you know, the UK is a European country, nonetheless, right? It may want to preserve, uh, you know, a certain element of uh, independence uh, or autonomy in terms of uh, foreign policy and so on and so forth. But, you know, when you think about uh, their interests, the interests of, uh, you know, the British uh, taxpayers and the British consumers and so on and so forth, I think every single analysis that I've seen concludes that it would be, you know, um, harmful right, for the UK to exit, right? It would have very negative effects. Um, so I think um, 
I'm hoping that appealing to that kind of a uh, of uh, of an argument, right, would uh, turn the uh, undecided voters, you know, uh, in the direction of uh, you know remaining within the EU. Uh, which is, if you remember, what happened also with the Scottish referendum. Uh, that at the end of the day, it was the um, the people who didn't feel strongly about either way who essentially swayed the result when the arguments were made, right, that, hey, this is going to have, like, uh, very large consequences. And, by the way, they could be irreversible. And immediate consequences, again, according yeah. to uh, the the Organization for Economic and Cooperation and Development, uh, Ireland would u- lose 1.25 points off of its GDP. Uh, the OECD, let's see, no, the Eurozone countries in general would lose a full percentage point. For how long? I, I leave it to yeah. you to, well, these to things, suggest. Yeah, these things are, are difficult to estimate. Sure. Uh, you know, as you know, right? Because uh, are you talking about um, a one-time negative effect, or are you mm-hmm. talking about uh, a negative effect, meaning a permanent or quasi-permanent reduction in the rate of growth, mm-hmm. or what are we talking about, right? Uh, but when you think about Ireland, since you mentioned Ireland, um, Ireland would be devastated by this uh, for two reasons. One is that its economy is very much driven by two things. One is its close relationship to the UK, which is, of course, of a historical nature. And then second, that Ireland has become a hub for doing business in the rest of Europe. So a lot of American firms yep. uh, you know, establish their operations there. Google, I think, is going to be... You know, hiring like ten thousand employees in in outside of Dublin, right? I mean, it's just uh, uh, Ireland plays a very important role from that respect. That um, so, if the UK gets out, uh, that's going to you know kind of mess up Ireland's strategic positioning, right, in the world, right? It's like, what do we do now, right? Uh, but then the other way in which um, the Irish Republic is going to be the Republic of Ireland is going to be affected is because of uh, Northern Ireland, because if the UK were to get out then there will be, again, a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And, uh, you know, yeah. now that uh, we've enjoyed a few years during which this problem has been put to rest, right, pretty much the uh, Irish problem, right, that issue, you know, if we were to go back to having a border, uh, that could actually, I think, uh, you know, reignite uh, some of the uh, conflict, some of the tensions, some of the frictions, right? So You think it could go that, that, to that extent? Well, sure, because right now you have free movement of people, free yeah. movement of goods, free movement. I mean, uh, the UK, a uh, UK outside of the EU and the Republic of Ireland would need to negotiate something, right? So, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that it's not that. So, I'm not concerned that they wouldn't be able to reach an agreement. What I'm concerned right. is that now we have an arrangement that seems to work. There's no violence. Why mess it up? There's no exactly, yeah. and uh, a Brexit would essentially mean, hey, we have to go back to the table and talk. And you know what happens, yep. right? When you go back to the to, to the table to uh, negotiate a deal, uh, in this case, it would need to be something, um, you know, quite uh, detailed about what we're going to do. I mean, at the present time, people can move freely across that border. Yeah. But if the UK were to exit, that border would exist again, right? Another interesting thing about that is is economic conditions have reversed. So. Northern Ireland, Belfast used to be the economic powerhouse of that island for years and years and years. That's yeah. completely reversed. Their economy has shrunk. Their population has yeah. shrunk. And Ireland, Southern Ireland has, has blossomed for all the reasons you're talking the about. The Republic so, of Ireland, yeah. Republic of Ireland, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> southern Ireland. I mean, Southern exactly. Ireland, actually, yes. yeah. the southern part of Ireland is also doing quite well. Yes. <laughs> uh, thanks to some initiatives that they've set into yeah. motion, including Shannon Airport and... Uh, 
you know, some uh, hubs for high tech industry and all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's very clear that um, Republic of Ireland uh, has done quite well over the last 30 years. Um, they did have a problem with a uh, real estate bubble mm-hmm. and uh, problems with their banks, as you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, eight years ago. But uh, they've put those uh, problems mm-hmm. behind them. Now it's growing really, really quickly, right? Back to growth. So yeah. another important thing I want to ask about, uh, and this goes back to Europe, uh, is this rise of right-wing politicians and right-wing movements. Um, this kind of stuff, people relate to poor economic conditions. Obviously, the immigrant crisis is fueling it also. But even before that, the, this was a trend that was happening. What's your view on that? What's your take on that? What's happening in France in particular? Yeah, well, this is all, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, very worrisome. And as you know, it's very difficult to generalize because uh, in each of these countries, like in the Netherlands or in Denmark, in Austria, now in France, right, for a while, uh, even in the UK with the UK uh, Independence Party, uh, and uh, and in Germany itself uh, with uh, Alternative for Germany, right. Uh, the origins and uh, the drivers of uh, of these uh, right wing, uh, you know, extremist parties are different. So some people, uh, you know, um, in the last uh, few days have been blaming Mario Draghi for the rise of these parties. I think that's, you know, uh, that's totally wrong, uh, you know, um, because uh, I think there are very, very distinct uh, historical patterns, right? Uh, at the end of the day, um, as you said, I mean, these parties existed before the current migration crisis, but the crisis has exacerbated the, uh, the problem in the, uh, in the minds of some of these people. And, you know, whenever you have a, a crisis such as that one, there's always the potential for opportunistic politicians to take mm-hmm. advantage of them. And this is the problem. The problem is that now, apparently, there is in many of these European countries, though not in Italy or in Spain or in Portugal, right, but it's in, the, in most of the others, uh, there's enough of a critical mass of voters that are true believers in that, um, you know, um, bringing immigration down to zero, you know, closing yeah. the borders essentially, and um, rewriting some of the rules so that, uh, you know, um, uh, there are restrictions on the, what minorities can do throughout the continent and all of that is the way to go. There are some true believers. And then... You know, again, depending on the circumstances, if there's a crisis, if the economy is not performing well, then you have a whole bunch of other people who are desperate or near desperate who also vote for those parties. But they're not really true believers, right? I think mm-hmm. if you ask them, you know, do you really believe that we should, you know, get rid of all of the Muslims in France, they would say, no, no, of course not. I, I have many friends, right, who are Muslim. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we have to take into consideration both. I mean, the people who vote for these parties come in two types, right? So one is the true believers, and those are the really dangerous ones, of course. Those are the unconditional supporters. And then you have the other ones who, depending on the circumstances, you know, they vote for these parties or or not, right? And uh, the problem is that right now, for those people, the second group, there's plenty of reasons for them to think that uh, conventional parties um, don't have the solution to these problems. And there's a lot of anxiety, right? So Brexit or no Brexit, uh, and you talked about the possibility of recession in Europe again. I mean, is is that the anecdote to this is stronger economic growth, which which I think you have ideas about how that could happen, but they well, seem to if, meet with such resistance. Well, if you want to put it in those terms as to yeah. whether, you know, um, in 20 years from now or 50 years from now, some of the topics that we're discussing will be just a footnote in a history book, or it will be, uh, you know, the... Uh, the uh, title of a chapter. 
I would have to agree with you that most of these things, to tell you the truth, I think they're going to be footnotes. Because Europe is facing so so much more fundamental challenges than any of these things. I mean, Europe is facing yeah. a huge challenge with population aging. You know, in many countries around, uh, across Europe now, uh, you know, on average, uh, each woman is having 1.2, 1.3 children over her lifetime, right? This is the current fertility rate in Europe. Well, there's no way you can run those economies with that kind of a demography. Unless, of course, you have some kind of an orderly policy for bringing in immigrants, right? With uh, a variety of, uh, mm-hmm. of uh, skills that would help you, you know, uh, continue having a dynamic economy. This is one problem. Uh, the other issue is Europe's uh, own diminishing importance in the world, uh, which is, uh, from many points of view, is just, um, you know, something to be expected because other parts of the world are growing much faster, right? So it's the decline of Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Which has been, you know, brewing for a very long time. And then on top of all of that, we have the, 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 the divisiveness and the, uh, and the frictions, um, you know, among all of these different kinds of countries, right? So it's not just two blocks, right? It's like, you know, the frugal countries and then the spendthrifts, right? No, yeah. no, no. It's, uh, we have multiple different kinds of countries there. It's a mosaic. And uh, what I think uh, most people are realizing these days is that the old policy or the old approach of trying to integrate everything in Europe to try to bring everything under one common standard is kind of a self-defeating you know, exercise, right? That unless you are very careful as to how you build the institutions, how you uh, lay the foundations for that integration, you're likely to um, intensify the tensions and the frictions as opposed to you know, reduce them, right? Which is what I think has happened over the last uh, decade or so. Great to have you here, Mauro. Thanks very much for giving us your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Mauro Guillen for the Wharton School, also Steve Sharetta from Knowledge at Wharton. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.